If you would stand with me and turn to Hebrews 12 this morning. We're going to be reading verses 11 through 29. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weakened knees and make straight the paths of your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent through the sod with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they cannot endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was it, the sight of Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in a festival gathered, and the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteousness made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkling of blood that speaks a letter of word that the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet one more I shake will not only uh, the earth but also the heavens. This fray, yet once more, indicates removal of things that are not shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that all things cannot be shaken and may remain. Therefore let us be grateful, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. May be seated. Good morning. We have before us this morning in 12 through 17 of chapter 12 a reminder not only to run, which we've been called to at the beginning of chapter 12, but to uh, keep on running. Uh, Really, this in many ways is an exhortation to the church to see to it that we keep on running. A familiar theme uh, with some various nuances weaved in in 12 through 17 today that we'll talk about. Before we talk about that, let's ask of the Lord to bless his word as it goes forth here this morning. Would you join me as we pray? Lord, I'm, I'm glad as I stand here this morning, I'm glad that you are an impartial father. Our prayers to you are received as they are intended for you know our hearts. The Bible tells us that. You know everything about us. And for that, I'm, I'm grateful as I, as I pray. We have before us here, Father, in, in Hebrews 12, another passage calling us onward, 
exhorting us forward in the faith. It's a text that brings out the doing aspect of what it is to be a Christ follower. A text that calls attention to the working out of our salvation. A text that's designed to move us from accumulating data about you to applying the data in the context of our daily living. And Lord, that has always been a large obstacle for me, for this people. I'll speak on behalf of the church. We confess that we've not done very well in the doing, in the working, in the walking out, in the running. We live in a day that demands we do and we work and we walk and run, that others might see you. And that others might be given godly examples to follow while here on earth. Lord, as we've studied your your word in the book of Hebrews, we're grateful to be anchored in someone better. Jesus has run the race we are now called to. He's finished it and he's perfected it. And he's called us not only to look unto him and to consider him, but to pursue the necessities of Christian living in order to finish the race set before us. Father, we pray to you this morning, understanding that we need your grace to do this very thing. That amazing grace still has a sweet sound to it, even yet this day. And we thank you for being our God of all grace. Strengthening us for the journey. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ken Hughes, in his commentary, describes words from writer and marathoner Art Carey. It was written in the Philadelphia Inquirer back in April 12, 1978. And he picks up the story sort of midway through his run, about the time he's hitting the wall. By now, he says, the rigors of having run nearly 20 miles, by the way, a marathon is how many miles? 26 and change, right? The rigors of having run nearly 20 miles are beginning to tell. My stride has shortened, my legs are tight, my breathing is shallow and fast, My joints are becoming raw and worn. My neck aches from all the jolts that have ricocheted up my spine. Half-dollar-sized blisters sting the soles of my feet. I'm beginning to feel queasy and lightheaded. I want to stop running. I've hit the wall. Now the real battle begins. Up the first of many long inclines, I start to climb. One, two, one, two, right, left, right, left. I keep watching my feet move one after the other, hypnotized by the rhythm, the passage of the asphalt below. Shoulder cramps, leaden legs, seething blisters, dry throat, empty stomach. Stop, keep moving, must finish. A radio listening spectator reports that the race is over. Six miles away, Bill Rogers has won again. His ordeal is done. The most intense of my own is about to begin. Heartbreak Hill, the last, the longest, and the steepest, a half-mile struggle against gravity designed to finish off the faint and faltering. 
Hundreds of people stand along the hill watching, urging the walkers to jog, the joggers to run, the runners to speed on to Boston. Slowly, ever so slowly, the grade begins to level out. The last four miles are seemingly endless. Some runners, their eyes riveted catatonically to the ground, trudge alone in their bare feet, holding in their hands the shoes that have blistered and bloodied their feet. Others team up with, with, with others, to, they team up to help each other, limping along, arm in arm, like maimed and battle-weary soldiers returning from the front. Finally, the distinctive profile of the prudential building looms on the horizon. I begin to step up my pace Faster, faster, smoother, smoother, suppress the pain, finish up strong, careful not too fast, don't cramp. I can see the yellow stripe 50 yards ahead. I run faster, pumping my arms, pushing off my toes, defying clutching leg cramps to mount a glorious last gasp kick. 40 yards, 30 yards, 20 yards, cheers and clapping, 10 yards, finish line, an explosion of euphoria. I am clocked in at 2 hours, 50 minutes and 49 seconds. My place, 1,176th. I find the figures difficult to believe, but if they are accurate, then I have run the best marathon of my life. While times and places are important, and breaking a personal record is thrilling, especially as you grow older. The real joy of the Boston Marathon is just finishing. Doing what you've set out to do. The real joy of the Boston Marathon is just finishing. Finishing, persevering, enduring, crossing the tape of faith's race set before us. Paul says it this way to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished The race. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only. I love this part of the verse. We oftentimes don't read this part of the verse. This is critical. Paul says, and not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. And I was reminded of 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. It says, everyone who has this hope in him. What hope? The hope of Jesus being revealed again. Or as the verse prior to says, of seeing Jesus as he is. That's the hope. His appearing. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. Just as he is pure. You see, the race that's set before us is a battle. It's a struggle. You heard it mentioned as he's riding, running this race, hitting the wall, what it feels like. It's a struggle. It's a fight. But Paul says it's a good fight, isn't it? It's a good fight. The aim and objective is to finish this race for the Lord's sake. To hear the words of our Lord, well done, my good and faithful servant. Imagine meeting the end of this life, knowing that the life to come is the reward that awaits. And according to the Bible, that life to come is highlighted by seeing Jesus as he is. 
So I want to ask you a question. Is running the race of faith worth it? Is it worth all of the struggles, all of the challenges, all of the trials and hardships, the disciplinary hand of God upon you, pressing firmly at times to guide you in the way everlasting? We talked about that last week. Is it really worth it? Does the truth of seeing Jesus at the end of your race make any difference? Does it motivate you at all to keep going? To keep running? Even when you feel like stopping, you feel like relaxing, you feel like taking it easy, or you feel like quitting altogether because the path is just too hard. One read of of chapter 12, 12 through 17, and you're reminded that this race of faith is both necessary for the follower of Jesus and fraught with dangers. Necessary and dangerous. Those Those are critical words, I think, in the passage before us. Running the race is both necessary and dangerous. We are called to run this race of faith, but it's a marathon of a race, and it demands a certain training regimen unlike anything that you're going to find in this world, friends. The training called for in this marathon race is godliness. Train yourself in godliness. Exercise yourself in godliness. That's biblical terminology. Spiritual disciplines are a necessity to finish this race. The prize for which you strive is an imperishable crown, not a trophy for the trophy case. The reward is deferred to the end of the race here on earth. And that's the connection with faith, you see, because we run with hope to one day see Jesus, to be with Jesus in heaven. We run with a certainty of God's promises, even though we can't see them in the present. That's what the ancients were commended for. We run trusting that God will perform the things that he's promised in his word. Romans 4.21. Let us run. Chapter 12, verse 1. Let us run. Run. We've already been instructed to run looking unto Jesus, right? We've been called to run considering, verse 3, him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. We've been called to run recognizing that along the way, God deals with us as he deals with his own children. In other words, he deals with us through disciplinary measures. He corrects us, and that correction oftentimes is uncomfortable, oftentimes is painful, Discipline. The word itself invokes a turning away. By nature, we tend to shy away from and avoid anything that has to do with discipline. It's restrictive to our flesh, which desires to have its way in our life. And yet disciplined runners are the ones who make it to the finish line of faith. Discipline. For they know that God's disciplinary hand is the means by which he sanctifies and continually makes his children holy. 
Those trained in God's discipline are partakers of a spiritual harvest to come. It's called the peaceable fruit of righteousness in verse 11. And then you see verse 12. Look how 12 begins. If you have your Bible, I hope you have it open and you're looking at it. Therefore, the writer is building on what's previously been written. Having been called to run the race of faith, having heard that the race of faith demands chastening and discipline from God, therefore, and so what follows in 12 through 17 is an exhortation to keep on running. That's that's what this is. It's an exhortation to keep on running. Keep running the race of faith. It's necessary that you keep running, says the writer. You might hit a wall, but the Lord grants strength to those who get weary in the journey. Keep on running. It's an exhortation to run responsibly. The course that we're running is littered with all kinds of ditches and pitfalls. You know, I was, I was reminded of this uh, this past week. We had a birthday in our house, and one of the things that the birthday boy wanted to do was to play around a golf. And so we played a course we've never played before. There was one hole on this course. The whole course is pretty much littered with sand traps. But this one hole had like 20, at least. There's a par three. Par three is the shortest, one of the shortest holes on the course. It was a short hole, but everywhere you look is like sand. You know, you're, you're up the tee box, and it's pretty intimidating. Truth be told, you're, look, you're, you see this, this little green thing that you're supposed to hit the ball on, but you see all of this sand is all around it. And I was thinking about that as I was thinking about you know, this race that we're running and, and all the traps and all the, all the things that are in our way. All the things that we look at and we see and it's, it's somewhat frightening, truth be told. He's called us to run. To run responsibly and understand the race that we're running. The text calls the Jesus follower, calls the church, to run responsibly knowing that traps and snares line the path. Traps and snares, in fact, are unavoidable in the world that we live in if we bear the name of Jesus. I'm sure you've noticed by now how ruffled people get when a Christian speaks up in the marketplace. When a Christ follower says something, it immediately gets amplified and twisted. And assumptions are quickly made about this Christian's agenda. For sure, this is a dangerous race that we run. Nevertheless, we're called to run responsibly, following our leader all the way to the end. And don't forget that Jesus' race here on earth, David spoke a little bit about this in the Lord's Supper, His race ended carrying a wooden cross uphill. Uphill. He ended his life going uphill. The text says, therefore, and so we need to ask the question, what's the exhortation? And there's going to be two general components here in 12 through 17. The necessities and the dangers. The necessities are, hey, here are the things that you must do. Here's what's called for as you run. And the dangers, here are the warnings. Here's what to watch out for as you run. Praise God, he gives us both. 
Here's what's needed to run this race of faith, church. Look at verse 12. Look at it with me. Verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. That's verse 12. The word for strengthen is a word that means to restore to straightness or erectness, to to reinvigorate. It's a word where we get our English word uh, orthotics. You know, when you put orthotics in your shoes, it's intended, a lot of people put that in their shoes that will help them maybe walk, correct uh, how they walk. Uh, perhaps, or if they're, they're avid runners, it might be also helpful for them as they're running and, and doing lots of running, uh, be, be helpful for their feet and their alignment and, and that things of that nature. That's the word here, strengthen, to restore to straightness, to reinvigorate. It was used by uh, medical writers of the art of setting dislocated parts of the body. I strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Strengthen hands that hang down and feeble knees. The picture here is one of a runner. I mean, do you get the picture here? A runner who's kind of lost his steam in the race? One of the first things that goes is your hands. (laughs) They drop. They sag. Your knees get a little weak. Going up that hill, you've hit the wall. You can picture it. They weaken and they become unsteady. If you've ever run any long distance, you know what this is talking about. I was reminded of this as we, uh, sometimes in our home, we, we do some workouts in the, in the backyard and on the, on the court. And we, one of the things that we do that reminded me of this very verse, uh, we actually do defensive slides. And... It's it's simply getting in a defensive stance in a basketball position where my knees are bent and I'm acting like I'm sitting in a chair, my arms are up, and I take slides like this. And I go all the way across the court and I go all the way back. And by the time I get back, in fact, by the time I get halfway, truth be told, my legs, you feel it. Because you're in that position. Not only do your legs feel it, but your arms feel it. Your arms go from here, and very soon, those arms just start to come down. The longer you're in that position. He's writing here about strengthening what's needed, what's necessary in this race, is to strengthen the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees. The necessities of running the race before us. I want you to notice something from this passage. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore we also let us run. This race is intended to be run together, not separately, in isolation. Together we run. Together we endure. Together we go through God's chastening. And together we look forward to the reward of seeing Jesus and being with Him in heaven. Together we help each other run. And I mention this because the instructions in the text could very well be received in the same vein as much of the self-help material that you might find in your local bookstore. This passage is not primarily here to help you become a better you. It's not. It needs to be mentioned. Aligning yourself under God's word 
no doubt will mature you in the faith and serve you well in your pursuit of holy living. It will do that. However, what I hope you see in the text is a call to keep going for the sake of primarily the Lord's sake, but also for the sake of your brother and your sister. Keep going that they might keep going. How's that sound? Keep going so that they might keep on going. Keep on running the race of faith so that those who follow behind you will have an example of what it is to run in pursuit of Christ. And this becomes clearer as you read verse 13. You see, the reason for strengthening the hands and the knees is on the back end of verse 13. And it's coupled with strengthening. We see the text also calls us to make straight paths for your feet. Look at verse 13. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. A path is is a word that really has in mind a a wheel track. A a wheel track. You can can visualize a, a, a truck that's that's driven somewhere and leaves a a major track. You you see that track, it's pretty clear, the track that it leaves behind. I was reminded here as I was thinking about this making straight paths of one in the Bible who did exactly this. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, right? He came, he was the one who was prophesied in Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the desert, make or prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths. That's what John did with his life. He made straight paths so that others might see and follow Christ. Church, that's what we're called to do. We're called to also make straight paths. Clear wheel tracks that people can identify and follow in. I love the words of Zechariah as he's prophesying in chapter 1 of Luke. In the last few verses there of Luke 1, he says, And you, talking about his son who's just been born, John, you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. You will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Listen to what it says here and to to guide our feet into the way of peace. That was the prophecy of Zechariah about his son, John. One of the things he was going to do was guide our feet into the way of peace. This peace is something we'll see in a moment, something that we're also to pursue, right? That was what John's life was about. Vincent in his commentary says that the exhortation here in verse 13 is, has in mind exerting yourselves to make the course clear for yourselves and your fellow Christian so that there would be no stumbling or laming. He gets to that here in just a moment in the text. Keep on running, keep going, strengthen the hands and feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet. Here's the reason. The necessity for doing so. So that, purpose clause, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. 
the idea of lame has in mind maybe what we would refer to as spiritual limping. Spiritual limping. Limping along. Dislocated is a word that has in mind to, to turn or twist out. Uh, Thayer defines this word as, uh, he says, lest it be wrenched out of its proper place. Vincent simply says uh, the idea of to be put out of joint. He says, make the paths smooth and even so that the lame limb be not dislocated by stones or pitfalls. Who then is the lame limb? Could it not be a brother or sister, a weaker brother or sister in the Lord who's watching? One who's weaker in the faith? You know, I was reminded of this out of joint. The first thing that came to my attention as I was reading this was, uh, was between my junior and senior year in high school, uh, in college, excuse me. And I was playing in a, uh, in a three-on-three basketball event. And I remember playing defense, and I remember Token jumping up to try and contest a shot. And I remember coming down, and I remember hearing a, a, a loud pop. And I remember looking down at my foot, and I remember seeing my foot. And it didn't look like what it normally looked like. My foot had stuck at like a 75-degree angle. At which time I fell down to the ground and waited until I could get to the emergency room. I remember what it was like to have something out of place. I remembered the pain of that. It hurt. And it kept throbbing until I was lying there on the table in the emergency room. And I remember the doc telling me what he was about to do. And I I didn't even like the idea of what he told me he was going to do. But I I admit, in retrospect, looking back, what he did helped alleviate the pain tremendously. You see, he put it back in its proper place. The foot is supposed to be a certain way. And when it's out of joint, it hurts. But when it's put back in place, it still was hurting and it still was swelling. But I'm telling you, it felt a lot better. Listen, there are some parts of this body that are lame. They're limping along, spiritually speaking. The necessity of this exhortation is crucial for the church of Jesus Christ. Listen, if we have a bunch of spiritually limping, ho-hum, half-hearted, lukewarm churchgoers, first of all, we need to understand that Christ died for the church And therefore, this kind of running is unacceptable to the Lord. Unacceptable. But I believe the text is also 
having us look at the necessity of strengthening the hands and knees and making straight paths for the feet for the benefit of others around us who need to see what it looks like to run after Christ in this life. See, if all we see around us is spiritual lameness, think about it for just a moment. Why should it surprise us to see the church out of joint as it is today? For a group of people receiving this message, talking about the writer of Hebrews addressing his audience, the outcomes, I believe, are very clear. Are you going to be dislocated? Are you going to be out of joint? In other words, are you going to return to the empty ways of the sacrificial system and the legalistic practices of Judaism? Are you going to abandon the New Testament covenant, which is a better covenant, a better Messiah, in lieu of holding on to the old one? Or are you going to be healed? Notice those are the two right there in the text. We're to to do these things in 12 and 13 so that what's lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Are you going to run the race of faith and be an example yourself, not concerned primarily with the outcome? We saw at the end of chapter 11, there are two outcomes. Triumph. Overcoming and defeat, death. Those are the outcomes. But are we running in such a way that we're most concerned about just simply being faithful and obedient to the Lord? Understand what the writer's saying. He's saying keep going. Continue the race of faith. It's hard, but keep going. Finish line is up ahead. I love the image he gives us. He's, he saw a marker in the Boston Marathon. He saw a, a marker that, that denoted the end was near. And I think the writer is telling us the same thing. Hey, hold on. Jesus has finished this. Keep your eyes on him. Keep looking this way. And the Bible tells us that this life is but a mist. It's really not that long. Remember that as you run, you not only do so to please the Lord, but you're helping your brother and sister run in paths of righteousness as well. Run in such a way that leads to healing and not to disjointedness. And know that your running does make a difference. It does. The exhortation continues in verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue peace And holiness. Pursue. It's a word here that is stronger than the word seek. Uh, Draws attention to an intensity and an urgency that the community needs to display in order to heed the exhortation. Make every effort. Hughes in his commentary says that, that this word pursue, it's a uniquely aggressive word. It's often used in the sense of to chase after one's enemies. Think about it, that image, chasing after an enemy. In the same way, we're to chase after peace. We're to chase after it. Do we do that? Romans fourteen nineteen. Let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify another. Ephesians 4, verse 3. 
Paul says we're to be endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Romans 12, 18 says that if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Notice, I love the phrase, if it is possible, because you know what? You're sitting there and you're going, well, I tried. That's what the scripture calls us to. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, right? For they shall be called sons of God. Pursue peace. And remember the context of the exhortation. It comes in the midst of a call to run with endurance, looking unto Jesus, run by faith, pursuing peace with all men. Understand this too as a side note, verse 14. The exhortation is to pursue peace and holiness. Let's understand that if we're in Christ, we have already that peace with our Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? We already have been made holy, haven't we? Positionally, with Christ. So this is not advocating or calling us to go after something that is going to, by nature of going after it, save us. No. Let's be clear. Let's make sure we're not confused about this. We're not pursuing peace and holiness for a ticket for salvation. We pursue peace and holiness as this ongoing sanctifying work, right? It's a progressiveness to the work that we ought to now desire because we have peace with our Lord Jesus Christ, because we have been made holy through what Christ did at the cross, through the empty tomb, okay? Let's be clear on that as we read the text. The text doesn't stop with pursuing peace. It goes on and says, and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Listen, God's chastening, if you are being trained in God's discipline, you will receive a harvest of peaceable fruit. Isn't that what verse 11 says? Peaceable fruit? If you're pursuing holiness, you will remain under God's disciplinary care, knowing that his discipline is always profitable for your soul. We talked about this last week. He disciplines those who are his, and he disciplines those whom he loves. It's God's discipline that allows us to be partakers of his holiness, right? So, if you're taking this exhortation seriously, you'll also take God's discipline seriously in your life. For to pursue holiness is to pursue God's will for your life. It's running in the way of righteousness, not turning to the right or to the left. which ought to remind you of Proverbs 4, 25 through 27. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let all of your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. Some good instruction there as we think about running the race, huh? The reality of pursuing holiness is this. Without it, no one will see the Lord. And while it is true that you as an individual, if you've not been made holy by God, if you've not been saved by grace through faith, you will fail to see the Lord. You will. 
But I want to hold forward the truth of the text. If, you're, if your life in Christ is not exhibiting a pursuit mentality after Jesus, the reality is that no one will see the Lord. Think about that for just a moment. How does it make you feel? How does it make the Lord feel? That's the primary, but I want you to also think about this. How does it make you feel to know that your life in Christ might actually turn people away, might actually keep people away from coming to know who the Lord Jesus Christ is? I want you to see, and I believe the text wants us to see, the ramifications of running this race wrongly, poorly, half-heartedly. Without a pursuit mentality. Out of all people on planet earth, the church ought to be pursuing. There ought to be this pursuit mentality of a follower of Jesus Christ. As we run the race set before us, let's remember that we run for the sake of Christ Because we run for his sake, we run also to exhibit the name of Christ to the brethren, to the many lost souls around us who need to see what peace and holiness look like in this earthen tent. So the call to run is a call to witness as well, isn't it? We're exhorted to pursue peace and holiness, not merely for our own growth and maturation in Christ, but for the sake of the brother and sister running alongside us, for the co-worker who's watching, for the neighbor who's examining, for the friend who is evaluating. Is running after Jesus really worth it? Does your life shout out, yes, yes, running the race for Jesus is absolutely worth it? Is that what your life says to those around you. The text has exhorted us to run. Out of necessity, we run, and that to please our Lord and make straight tracks for the brethren who follow behind us, alongside us, those who are limping along in the race. Run in such a way as to get the prize of Christ. And when you run with an intensity that's called for in the text... Others will take note as well. And a healing begins to to take place among the body of Christ. Whereby a church, picture this, a church running the race of faith together all the way to the end. It's a beautiful picture. In the final three verses, the writer is exhorting the listener of the dangers along the path. Three specific dangers are mentioned in the text. And and you can identify each one by the word lest. If you have New King James, lest is your key word. And it's almost as though he's saying here, here are the dangers to, to watch for as you run. Beware, look out, take heed. Lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. That's verse 15. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this many become defiled. That's also verse 15. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. That's 16. 
17. Pursue peace with all men and holiness, looking carefully. Looking carefully, interesting phrase. Watching diligently, some of your translations might say, or seeing to it. The word here for looking carefully in the original language uh, is, is a familiar word probably to some. It's where we get the word uh, bishop, uh, episcopeo, overseer. Uh, it's, it's the word that's used in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, when Peter is talking about uh, being an overseer. He's, he said he's a shepherd, and he's also referring to himself as an overseer. It's important for us to understand here that this is a plural command, looking carefully. Who's to look carefully? We all are. We're all to be overseers. Hughes says in his commentary, thus this makes everyone responsible to make sure that no one misses the grace of God. It's like he says, all of you act like bishops, act like overseers in seeing that no one succumbs to gracelessness. Helping one another finish the race. That's what's being advocated in this passage. And that's been a recurrent theme in this book of Hebrews, hasn't it? Let me give you a few uh, bullets, snapshots of this idea. Hebrews 3.13. Exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 4, verse 1, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Hebrews 4, verse 11, Let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Hebrews 6, verse 11, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish. And Hebrews 10, 25, Exhorting one another daily. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. The day's approaching. It's coming. Run the race together. Help one another on in the race by pursuing peace. And holiness. Be overseers of one another. Take pastoral care for the brother that's seated next to you and the sister seated next to you. Help him get to the finish line. Do we have that mentality, church? Helping our brother and sister get to the finish line? We live in a culture in a day and age that is about Self. Anybody disagree with that? It's all around us. People are always wanting to help you find out and figure out how to help yourself get better. There aren't too many folks today advocating how you might help somebody else get better. And there sure aren't many people today holding forth the word of God exhorting you onward in the race of faith. And as you run the race of faith, run in such a way as to help your brother and sister run 
as well. You're not going to find it anywhere else besides God's word. God's word of truth is the only place you're going to find that instruction. Looking carefully. Watching diligently. Lest anyone fall short or fail to obtain the grace of God. The grace of God. One writer was speaking of this grace, the importance of our running the race together. It says our capacity to understand God's word and to experience his grace is vitally linked to our participation in church with all the saints. It is in rich community that we receive grace upon grace. Listen, what what so many people don't understand is that this community aspect, there's a, there's a reason, there's a big picture for why we gather. Why we come together. We're running the race. Part of running the race is desiring to be with one another. I'm afraid that the church has gotten casual on its run. Has maybe been limping along in its run half-heartedly. There doesn't seem to be this pursuit, this intensity, this urgency with which we run. And this is the way the Bible's called us to run. See to it. Look carefully. And here are the... If we don't do it, if we don't do this, if we don't obey what his word has called us to here, there's three things he puts forward. Lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. The rendering there springing up has in mind that it's already in the process of getting there. Lest any root of bitterness spring up. When a root of bitterness springs up, it does exactly what the text says it does. Causes trouble. In fact, earlier in Hebrews, didn't he talk about this same thing? Right? Chapter 3 talks about this. Bitterness, chapter 3, chapter 4. It's not the first time he's addressed this. Notice it goes on in chapter 15. And by this, many become defiled. Many. In the the language, it's the many. many. There's, There's several, many. Lots of folks become defiled. When this root of bitterness springs up. You see, it's important that we run this race as he's called us to run this race. Because if we don't run it the way he's called us to run it, there's some dangers here. There's some real, there's some real caution 
warning. He's flashing. These verses, these last few verses of the text are like neon flashing lights. Pay attention. Run with a hot pursuit or... There's going to be some that are going to miss out on the grace of God. There's going to be some who is going to have this bitter root springing up and it's going to cause trouble. It's going to cause trouble. And by this, many are going to become defiled. There's a third danger in 16, which gets moved into 17. Lest there be any fornicator. Or profane person like Esau. Some, depending on who you read, some are wanting to attach both of those words, fornicator and profane, to Esau. If you read the Genesis account on Esau, um, I suppose if you wanted to look at the fact that he had two wives, you could perhaps put that under the label. But really, there's not a whole lot said about fornication. Of Esau, it seems to be the the latter word descriptor is more dis- primary with Esau. Profane, he was that. that. That's that's characteristic of Esau. He was profane. The word has in mind a man who who had no regard for God, whose focus was only a f- on physical pleasures. You remember Esau. He comes in, he's hungry, and he gives up his birth. Listen, he gives up his birthright for a single meal. I mean, this guy's thinking of nothing but feeding his face. That's the idea of what's being described here. We don't run with this intensity that we're called to run with. Here's what's going to happen. Someone might fall short of the grace of God. They might not even initially receive the grace of God because they're looking at you and how you're running the race. But they also might not receive the grace as they're running, the grace that they could have received had you been also running. You see, these are connected. These are so connected. And there's this root springing up which causes trouble and defiles many. How many of you know that the church of Jesus Christ, one of the greatest issues, challenges, problems, we could label it, whatever we want to label it. Do you know that it has to do not so much with the people on the outside the walls? It has a lot to do with the people inside the walls. It's, it's this root of bitterness that the church has somehow lost sight of the fact we're running a race of faith and we're looking at a finish line and we're looking at Jesus and we're looking to finish and be with him. How is it that we get so sidetracked in this journey, in this race, that we start fighting amongst each other? Lest there be any fornicator or profane person. The writer said that Esau was completely earthbound. All his thoughts were on what he could touch, what he could taste, etc. Instant gratification was his rule of thumb. He was void of spiritual values. He was 
godless. You know, God has a message here, I believe, in these last two verses, in the 16 in particular, is the warning that's put forth. Sexual sin, physical appetites, when they're given free reign, will absolutely ruin the race. And listen, this is the connection. This is what we've been talking about all through 12 through 17 in particular. Not only is it going to ruin your race, but it has potential to ruin and damage other folks' race as well. It's called the testimony. It's called being a Christ follower. We have a testimony. People are watching to see how you're running the race, to see how you respond to those chastening Discipline moments in your life. Those, those times in your life when uh, there's an obstacle in your way. And they want to watch and see how you navigate through that as you continue. Are you going to run? Are you going to keep running? Are you going to throw in the towel? Are you going to get bitter? What are you going to do? They're watching. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. You know, can, can I just put, put out before you what was some folks, maybe a lot of folks, I don't know, tend to believe when they read this. One of the first things that some people come to the conclusion is that God is somehow harsh. God is somehow being oppressive and he's squashing Esau. No, he's not. He's rejected not because God's being mean. He's rejected, the text says, for he found no place for repentance. Let's be clear. And though, though he sought it diligently with tears, what is it he sought? I'm going to ask you the question. What did he seek? Was he seeking repentance or was he seeking the blessing? Was he sorry about what he had done? Or was he sorry that he just didn't get his blessing? Hopefully the way I ask the question, you get the answer. Listen, because the testimony of the scripture is such that when we call out, God will not despise a broken and contrite heart. Right? He won't. This is the testimony. Leaves us here at 16 and 17, sort of a somber ending to this particular part of the passage. Praise God, it keeps going. Calvin in his commentary says that those in whom the love of the world so holds sway and prevails that they forget heaven as men who are carried away by ambition addicted to money and riches, given over to gluttony and entangled with other kinds of pleasures, and give the spiritual kingdom of Christ either no place or the last place in their concerns. 
that's characteristic of Esau. A profane person. Someone who treats God and the things of God, and in this case, the race of faith, who treats it as something that's common and ordinary. Give or take it. Did Jesus treat the cross in a profane way? You know, when you're willing to give your life, which he did, it speaks volumes about his urgency, his pursuit to carry out the will of the Father, to run the race all the way to the end, to be our leader, our pioneer, our forerunner. All the more reason to look unto Jesus. Amen? The race is set before us. And we're called and exhorted in this passage to strengthen the hands make, and strengthen the knees, to make straight paths for our feet, understanding that in doing so, there are people watching, people following, people alongside who are looking for those wheel tracks. It ought to be our desire not to see them disjointed, dislocated, but to see them healed, to see them moving, to see them running. If they're walking, to see them jogging. If they're jogging, to see them running. If they're running, to see them continue to run. How are we helping our brothers and sisters in the Lord? As I read 12 to 17, that seems to be a highlight. The joy of the Christian's marathon is finishing well. And finishing well not just for me, not just my own run with the Lord. Yes, let's make sure we do that individually. Let's run. But for a much bigger purpose and perspective, let's also run understanding that we are a part of the body of Christ, connected one to another, and we're called to run and called to help others run as well. Amen? Can we do that? Let's help each other run. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the exhortation, a rebuke, in many ways. Lord, where we have failed in this, I pray that we would desire to earnestly get back on track with you. May we desire to obey your word in this. And we know that in running this race, as you've called us to run it, Lord, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be all kinds of challenges. I think about the picture of all those sand traps. They're going to be all over the place. But I also know this, Lord, that as we run, as you've called us to run, you are a God who will equip us all the way. You're a God who's going to go with us through the storm. You're going to be with us in the fire 
you promised to never leave us nor forsake us. So, Lord, with those promises and that good news before us, I pray, Lord, that we would desire to earnestly, wholeheartedly run this race and throw everything we've got into it for your honor, for your glory. And I pray others in the process would be able to see and that what they see in us as we're running will encourage them to run and motivate them to keep going even though it's hard in their own run as well. We need each other in this race. Help us to press on, Lord. We pray that each day you would grant us grace. And we know, Lord, from the Bible, that grace to run comes as we each humble ourselves under your mighty hand. The humility that's exhibited opens the door for your grace to be poured out in our lives. All the more reason to be looking out for one another and not just for ourselves as we run this race. Thank you, Lord, for your good word. In Jesus' name, amen.